Father, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to meditate upon your word and to apply your word. Lord, you never have an idle word. You design your word to accomplish its purpose. And we pray in the precious and most powerful name of Jesus that your words would shape and form us as we listen attentively to your word and what your spirit would have to say to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I've entitled today's message, Marching Orders for Christians. Now Peter, he's a very practical man. I love that about Peter. Super practical. Being married helped. <laughs> had kids. And his background as a fisherman would have helped too. Because prior to following Jesus, Peter's life consisted of practical things. You know, things like boats, smelly fish, lots of fish, sweat, hard work, getting up early, really early, supporting a family. This guy knew what it was like, the nitty gritty of real life. So we shouldn't be surprised as we continue in our systematic walk through the book of 1 Peter when, we, when we, his personality comes through these words and his to-the-point style show through his writings. Now, Peter was neither scholarly nor was he sophisticated. He had little interest in theoretical tootsie-wootsie or mumbo-jumbo or spiritual jibber-jabber. He had zero interest in that. From him, truth was meant to be lived. Truth was meant to be lived. Not just simply heard and then promptly ignored. Not interested, Peter. That's what he'd say. Now, if an urgent situation arose, Peter was the guy that demanded action, rolled up his sleeves and got dug in. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. So now, when Peter is dictating this letter to these suffering saints that we've been looking at, he gets down to the brass tacks. He gets down to the guts of the issue, the business end of the deal. Urgency, friends, leads to simplicity. And so he cuts to the chase. And Peter can't avoid the very practical implications of living in the light of Christ's return. Doesn't get bogged down, notice, in speculating dates. Ignore anybody that speculates on dates on the return of Christ. I suggest what they need is a baptism of humility. Nobody knows that date. But Peter doesn't get bogged down and the hows oh, and the winds and the wares of the end times. He stands instead firmly on the question, though, of so what does that mean that he's coming back? What does it actually mean to me practically? So in these next five verses that we're going to look at today, Peter sports his pragmatic best. He's absolutely at the best. He gives us four commands in five verses and one goal. Four commands, one goal. How many commands? How many goals? Right. In five verses. Easy. Adds up, right? Simple. Direct. No beating around the olive tree. 
just gets to the facts. Here we go. Let's read it from 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable, verse 9, to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, when time is short, two operating principles kick in. Urgency, and simplicity. Urgency and simplicity. But one end of the scale, when a good example of this is when people discover that perhaps they or a loved one have not got long to live. I've noticed they put their relationships with loved ones center stage. And they very much simplify their schedules. That's at one end of the scale. Something a little bit more, but, but it, don't walk away from the weight of that. But a more mundane example is when you get ready to go on holiday. Have you noticed how fast decisions get made and inbox gets cleared and desk gets sorted and everything gets done? Have you noticed that? Time short, stuff gets done. There's a principle, urgency, Simplicity. Now, Scripture, along the same theme, treats the end times in the same way. Over and over and over and over, it says, time is short. Time is short. And by the way, my son's tongue was very short the other day. He was nearly gone. You don't know. An out-of-control truck went past. He'd just gone through this out-of-control truck, ran a red light. The guy had a medical event and just smashed into a whole bunch of, I think, that could have been him. And it was half a second. I said to him, Buster, I had a serious talk. He said, son, that's the fourth time that you've nearly escaped by the skin of your teeth. None of us know. Not one of us. Oh, I'm in good health. So what? I'm a good driver. So what? Time is short no matter what. The phrase, the end of all things, Peter's going to switch modes here. The end of all things is near. It's approaching. Now these early Christians who faced persecution took great comfort in the fact that their suffering would soon end. That the evil ways of the wicked people around them and the wicked world would soon be judged. Because guess what? Sometimes you can't fix some of the screw-ups in this world. You can't. I can't. And their only hope, 
Because if you think that you're going to do it, you're going to be disappointed and bitter. You're going to leave that with God that he will sort it and judge it righteously. So Peter reminds his readers here that time was short and two things, and the second thing, that our reward is sure. So he's about to provide some marching orders for the soldiers of the cross. Now remember, again, Peter has been dealing with suffering Christians who are being taken advantage of by the government, by their work, and in their own marriages. And many of them couldn't see any end or any uh, relief in sight. So suddenly Peter introduces the one thought that gives a measure of relief. The end of all things is coming and judgment will be righteous and the score will be finally settled. Now it not only has urgency about the end of all things, end of all things in judgment, but Peter simplifies the game plan. And here it is, the first, four command, first of four commands. Four commands to obey and one goal to pursue. Four commands to obey, one goal to pursue. The first, the first command is this. Found, oh, let me summarize it. Use sound judgment. Stay calm in a spirit of prayer. Very practical. Can you hear his, his practical nature coming out here? In light of all of this, it says here, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, this is the reasoning for it. Be of sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of prayer. So Peter says here, in the light of time being short, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. It means that you don't panic when disaster is impending or when things are particularly unpleasant. Anybody had some unpleasant things hit recently? Yeah? Don't panic. Here's another one. When somebody's elected that you don't like, chill out. This is not our kingdom. This is not Jesus' kingdom. Relax. Don't spend all of your energy debating all this tootsie-wootsie. This is not going to go. If the nightly news is getting you down and seems to get worse, be a sound judgment and sober in spirit. Don't panic. Be calm. Don't worry. What he's saying there is practically don't be filled with anxiety. Now in that context, and in today, it also means, because believe it or not, I've lived long enough where the thought was, oh, well, I'll just quit my job. Christ coming, I'll just quit my job. Abdicate responsibility, because Jesus might come back today. I remember even thinking, why should I go to university? Why do I need a degree? Ridiculous, right? Peter's, if I'd have read and understood what the Word of God says then, I would have been using sound judgment and I would have been sober in spirit. Now, that's not to say you need to live as if Christ may come back today. You need to do that. But you need to plan for the possibility it could be long after you've left. That is sound doctrine. Because I'm reading straight from the scriptures. It is a reasonable approach because we don't know the hour. We don't. Of Christ's coming. Now the secret to maintaining this kind of perspective is a calmness in prayer. So when something alarms you, you pray. When current events confuse you and disturb you and irritate you, 
you pray. When it looks like the world is spinning out of control, you pray. Prayer is what gives us genuine hope and confidence in Christ in the midst of confusion. So, practically, when you are panicking, you are not praying. When you're reacting, you're not trusting a sovereign God. Because guess what? He will see that his purposes prevail. Guarantee it. Number two, second command. Note this one. Stay fervent, fervent in your love for one another. Verse eight. Above all, he says, don't lose this. In the middle of all the unpleasantness, in the, in the middle of all of this uncertainty and anxiety, he says, above all, keep it up there. Keep it at the top of your mind. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, fervent is a word that is packed with intensity and determination. It's like the athletic term. Have you ever seen those Olympic runners as they burn around that last corner of the 400 meters and they hammer, slam down the hammer and they stretch towards the finishing line? Have you ever seen some, almost their necks are sticking out just to get a nose across that beam before anybody else? Have you ever seen that? That is the word that is used for fervent here. There's that intensity and determination. As you reach the final lap, now, Peter had sat at Jesus' feet, though. That's how it's supposed to be. This is a picture of how it's supposed to be, with that type of intensity. That's how it's supposed to be. The reality is he'd heard Jesus say some very sobering, stone-cold sobering things about the end times. That's how it's meant to be. Now, what did Jesus say it's going to be like? Matthew 24, 12. You can read it in your own time, but it's up here. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So what, let's go back to the erase analogy. Many will be tuckered out they won't even get to the finish line. But he who stands firm to the end, he'll be saved. But notice the love of most will grow cold. No affection, no motivation, no commitment to. By the way, just thought that comes to mind then is that when a person's running that last 100 meters after they're burned down there, they're not thinking about the techniques of coach A or coach B or coach C. They're just hammered down. The disputes and the things and the, the minor things are pushed to aside. Their whole focus is getting to the end and crossing that line. It needs to be the same for us. Urgency and simplicity go together. Not thinking about the daisies as he's passing, you know, uh, meter number 333. It's hammer down. Let's go for it. Keep the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So Paul also reminded Timothy that in the last days, People will be lovers of self. This scripture says, uh-uh, that's how it will be. But scripture says for us, 
we need to love one another. See the, see the contrast? They'll be lovers of themselves. It also says something else, by the way. It's not today's topic, but lovers of money. That's most important than anything to them. That's over here. But here, Peter completely reverses that frigid love, that frigid self-love. And in sharp contrast, believers are told here, above all, have a fervent love directed, not, but to each other. That's what it says. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That's verse 8. It has immediate application. In the midst of unjust predicaments, unpleasantness and persecution and confusion, nothing strengthens and encourages believers more than mutual love and care for each other. Then Peter quotes from a line from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 12, it's the last part of the verse, to demonstrate the practical manifestation of this love. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, stirs it up, but love covers all transgressions. Now nothing more quickly turns non-believers or unbelievers off, off Christ, off his church, than Christians bickering, whining, and complaining and grumbling. Nothing turns them off faster. Let me give you a good example of that. With catastrophic implications. The pacifist leader, Mahatma Gandhi, once said, I like your Christ, but I don't like you Christians. I like your Christ, but I don't like you Christians. Then somebody asked him, why? This is the reason he gave. They are so unlike your Christ. Bickering and fault-finding. What a rebuke. Imagine if that guy said, I like your Christ, and I like, your, I like his followers. They live like, like Christ. What an impact that would have had for Christ. Above all, keep fervent in your love. And if you want to prove how fervent you are, show forgiveness. You may want to write that down somewhere. We're like animals when we kill each other. We're like humans when we hate each other. But we're most like God when we forgive each other. Show forgiveness that persists through irritations and the antagonisms of normal, everyday life. How many times should I forgive, Lord? What was the answer? Yeah. Well, the actual behind that, it's not just 7 Sims 49 right up to number 46, Buster. The way I read that in the original language, it's like 7 to the 7 to the 7. Power. And those of you who know math, that's, you got to keep forgiving. Doesn't mean you keep trusting, but forgive. That's a whole other subject. Number three. Third command. Big one. That I think we've lost across the church in general today. Be hospitable towards one another. Be hospitable. Verse nine. And then, then he kind of adds this a little bit. Without complaint. 
The third command Peter issues in the light of Christ's imminent return is to be hospitable towards one another. Now, that's different from social entertaining. The early Christians depended upon hospitality because they couldn't stay down the local pub because it was mainly a brothel. Just facts. So they depended on fellow Christians. You're not going to go stay down K Road, right? You're going to have them in your home. No way. You stay in my place. The young church needed this interdependency. The problem is there were three stages of growth. I was just with a little one last night who's one and a bit. Right now, she is totally dependent on her parents, 100% for everything. Food, bathing, wiping her bum, the whole, you know, the whole deal, right? Total dependence. The next step in true moving towards maturity is independence, right? Where you don't need mum to spoon feed you and you get on with your life and you get out of bed and you get a job and you go to school and then, and then eventually you provide enough money to, believe it or not, feed your own habits and what I mean by that, let me be clear, telephones <laughs> and driving around the joint and you know you're self-sustaining that's step number two that's a step from there to here but there's more than that trouble is people camp here and they become hyper independent and the next stage of growth actually is interdependence where you realize you're not an island but actually other people martin <laughs> you you two have got something that you can add to my life and maybe there's something that i can help in your life it's not, I've got it all together. That's actually another word for pride. Now notice though, Peter's addition of the last few words. He says, be hospitable without complaining or grumbling. That gives a bit of a, again, Peter's tinge of realism. I mean, he's a dad, right? He's got a wife, he's got kids, and a lot of people in their home. Imagine being the apostle Peter. Everybody wants to be at your place, right? Being truly hospitable definitely will take you some time. But are you prepared to give that? Because that's what the scriptures ask you to do. Yes or no? You know what? It can cost money too. It can be inconvenient. And occasionally, let me just say it straight, frustrating. Now, during times of persecution, hospitality was especially welcomed by Christians who were forced and pushed out, and they had to go to new areas. So they knew nobody. So they were relying on other Christians to bring them in. Now, Peter urges us here, right there, urges believers to have a positive attitude towards hospitality. We're going to look at this in a second. One that flows from fervent love, and prayerful hope as described in chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, we looked at some weeks ago. Now, on the other hand, hospitality, let me be clear about this, isn't something that Christians should take advantage of. Now, what do I mean by that? You need to have some discernment here. Love does not mean that we enable people to leech off us. Whoa, are you supposed to say that? Yes. Read the New Testament. Paul sorted out there were some people who were so bone idle, he said, no, nope, take them off the list. They don't deserve supporting. That is balancing truth and love. Some people you will find will try and leech off you, and they are very happy for you to provide for them whilst they sit back lazily and fulfill their parasitic cravings. Woo! Yes! Sometimes you see that. 
Many moons ago, my father in the faith told me a few things, but one of the things I've noticed is that when you go to a potluck, make sure that you provide for at least yourself and a few other people. We're not talking about a big spread, but don't show up with a bag of chips the size of this and then eat pig out on everything else. Does that make sense? That's what he's getting at here. Fourth and final, Peter issues in the light of Christ any moment return to keep serving one another. Verse 10. Verse 10. Don't panic when I get through the, the last part quick. Peter makes it clear in a few words here that every believer, every single believer has a spiritual gift. What for? To build up the body of Jesus. He says here, verse 10, each one has received a special gift. I love these words. Circle them. Employ it. Put it into service. Get moving on it. In what? In serving one another. Now, do you notice that word again? One another. One another of the previous verse. And one another in the other point. All these one another's. Christians are meant to be in, um, interdependent. Not an island. Serve one another as good stewards. If you don't, you're not being a good steward. Direct derivation from that. Of the manifold grace of God. So if you're a believer, you have been gifted by God. But this gift isn't to make you feel better about yourself. Or to boost your own ego. Or to serve your own interests. But rather, the Bible says... These are investments made by God in you, in every member of his body. And he expects us to employ it and to get a return on that investment for his kingdom. In other words, we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now manifold, what does that mean? It's not an exhaust manifold. It means that it is literally many colored. There are many different colors in this. It implies there's a great variety of giftedness within the Christian community. And Peter encourages us here to be responsible with that gift, the unique gifts that God has given us. And he gives us just very briefly two, just very briefly and broadly, two gifts. There are many. That's, this is not the time to talk about that. There are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of gifts that are lifted. And they're exemplary. They're not exhaustive in the scriptures. That's a whole other subject for class 301. But two that he speaks of here, broad varieties, are speaking gifts and serving gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, with utterances of God. So get prepared. People aren't interested in what you have to think or what I have to say. They are interested in what God has to say. Let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things... Sorry, whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. So his point is here, let's not miss the point, is that we should treat our giftedness as a, as a unique responsibility and a great honor, relying on God's strength and to use it, to lift his people up and lift his bride up. Never forgetting that the message we proclaim is his message, not ours when we're speaking. 
And the purpose is not to serve ourselves, but to serve one another. So in summary, our hopeful expectation of the Lord's return should motivate us, get moving, get cracking, to use good judgment, stay calm in the spirit of prayer. In the spirit of prayer, verse 7. Verse 8, we should stay fervent in our love for one another. There's a first one another. We should remember to be hospitable, hospitable towards one another. Second one, we should never neglect to serve one another. There's a third one, through the use of our spiritual gifts. So these four commands answer Peter's question. What should we be doing in the light of the short moment on the short, any time we return of Christ. Yet Peter doesn't just leave it right there. Just with four marching orders. Do this, do this, do this, do this. That's what he clearly says there. He reminds us what our ultimate mission is all about. Where the end line is, where the finish line is, where the goal is. Where we're aiming for with all of our energy and fervently reaching towards it. He reminds us that the purpose for which we've been called and equipped by God and sent, like in every army, anybody who's ever served in the military, knows that they have an ultimate objective. And God is no different. He has an objective. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And we find it at the very end of 1 Peter 4, verse 11. In Peter's letter, he's already told us to live as strangers in the strange world. I'm now giving you some context to this. To put up with unfair treatment by others, not get so easily upset by it, and to abide with one another in loving unity so that, here it is, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. There it is, verse in the second part of that 11b. So when we keep this ultimate objective in the forefront of our minds, little else matters in life. Everything else kind of falls into place. So all these silly little squabbles that can upset you while unpleasantness, it gets put into place when we keep the goal in mind. I'm not saying that everything will always make sense. And neither am I saying that it'll, it'll always be easy. I am not saying that. And Jesus' word never says that. But here's one of my posit. How many conflicts would be resolved if that was everybody's goal? They'd all be down to the glory of God. How many egos will be put in place if God's glory, not human glory, or ambition was at stake? We used to sing a song many, many years ago, and it started off like this. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. But turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and in, that's theologically 100% spot on. We forget it though. We get caught up in side eddies and we forget picking the daisies on the last 400 or on the last 100. When we keep his glory uppermost in our minds, this is what happens. We are more comfortable with leaving the results with him in his time. And then our umbrella of love will extend over other people. And it covers others. When we keep his glory foremost in our minds, it's easier to share hospitality with others. 
for ultimately we are serving him. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. You gave me? Yes. When I was lonely, you visited me. Me? That's Jesus. When we keep his glory uppermost in our minds, exercising our gifts that we've been given is not a pain. It's a privilege and a great joy. Seeking God's glory in all things can be a difficult assignment, though. Let me be clear in this world, because this is a spiritual battlefield, and the battle will get more intense. The one thing that helps, however, is keeping in mind that the end, understand that the end of all things is near. Is at hand, verse 7. And if we understand this, if we truly understand this, Peter's commands are easy to obey, and his one goal is motivating to accomplish. Because one of my life verses is in um, Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, Lord, teach me to number my days, that I may present to thee a heart of wisdom. In other words, I don't frivolously waste my time. So, over the page, we're going to quickly go through this. Keeping the end in sight, friends, will focus me on godly living. So sometimes we think about the end times, I don't know about you, it will have often in the past brought to mind some crackpot who's walking around with a sandwich board either side saying, Jesus is coming on July 16th, you know, 2022. And then name a date. Ignore all of that. Never be seduced by that. Or, on the other hand, you sometimes see it done a little more subtly these days. And it goes like this. Some preachers sensationalize world events to alarm us into buying books, their books, of course, or on things like how to identify the Antichrist. Don't waste your time. Do not waste your time. When Peter preaches about the end times, he has a completely different outlook. He's got practical exhortations and prudent warnings for a godly perspective. Yet, he still announces the end is near. But he doesn't tell us to head for the hills, hide in caves, build a bomb shelter like I saw one guy on YouTube doing the other day <laughs> in his backyard, and arm yourself to the teeth. He doesn't say that. Look again, one more time before we evaluate ourselves. Be a sound judgment, sober in spirit. That's not being frivolous. Making prayer a priority. Oh, we could just stop right there on that one, verse, uh, one point. Keep fervent in love. Be hospitable without complaint. And serve one another with your gifts. Now, if you knew the end was in sight, and you only had, say, one month to live, urgency, simplicity, what would you do What one person would you want to share Christ with before the end came? Now with sound judgment and sober spirit, why don't you consider? Consider that. Consider praying for that person that came to mind, that one person. Don't make it ten. One. Just one. So now, because I've gone through that, and there's an awful lot in that, any one of those verses we're going to camped on. I am going to spend the balance of my time 
the next few minutes, I want us to take, for the carpenters amongst us, the rough edges around our lives and line them up against the square edge, the straight line of God's word, so that we can square off and identify what is out of kilter, what's out of plumb here. Because no good looking at that and doing nothing about it. 1 Peter 4, 7, first of all, tells us to be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of more time on the Xbox. No, for the purpose of prayer. So on a scale of 1 to 10 there, this is you. This is where you get to test your own faith against the square edge of God's word, the plumb line. Because how do you know something's crooked unless you know what's straight? One to ten. What is the one thing that you could do or stop doing that would move you a notch higher on that scale? Now, I've given you a few scriptures to have a think about this afternoon or in your devotions this week. But listening to the word of God without applying it to the square edge of our lives is very dangerous and can end up in deception. First Peter 4, 8, next verse. It encourages to set our priorities straight. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for another because love covers a multitude of sins. How fervent is your love for those around you in the body of Christ? One to ten. You get to choose. Where would you put that? Just put a little dot. You don't have to draw it so big to see your neighbors. Just put a dot so you know where your initial assessment is. And is there anything that you could do, one thing to move that north towards the other end of the number line? And again, there's some scriptures you can take a look at later. And you may want to write those things down. 1 Peter 4.9. Here's a very practical one. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. What do those complaints look like these days? Speak up. Somebody give me, help me out. Thank, thank you. My prayer partner, Denise, <laughs> who you're going to hear from shortly, not today, but shortly, and a testimony, she knows. I'm too busy. That's one complaint. By the way, what is it that turns some, uh, sometimes turns you from a gracious host or hostess into a silent, complaining person? <laughs> what is it that does that, eh? You may want to write that down there, too. Very easy to start off with the right intention and get bent out of shape along the way. Anybody experienced that before, apart from me? <laughs> First Peter 4.10. Peter here admonishes to use our God-given gifts in serving one another. Each one is received. No excuse. Oh, I haven't got one. Please don't say that. It's like your kid that says, I can't do that. You're not going to buy that. One second. No way, Jose. And God doesn't buy it either, because you'd be calling God a liar. He says, each one has received a special gift. Employ it! Or is yours unemployed at the moment? Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold. See, if you employ it, you are being a good steward. If you don't, you're being a bad steward. Actually, NASB has a stronger word for it, a wicked steward, because you've been given something and you're not sharing it. What do you call your kid? Who's got a gift or a toy? I don't share it. You call it selfish, right? But I'm just being, I'm just stating the facts. So here's the first point. What gift has God given you? 
that often shows up. Not always, but can show up in your work. Don't think about highfalutin stuff sometimes. It's very practical. God uses some people's gifts in Excel <laughs> and PowerPoint and music and not just that, and property valuations and all engineering and you name it. God has given you these gifts. My question to you is how are you using them to build God's kingdom? That's between, I have some gifts too. And they're not all speaking gifts. Some of them are different. And you've got at least one that I do know. But just find one. I mean, how are you using that to move, to love other people, and to move the kingdom forward? And he, so here we are. Here's the evaluation part, the part that's really hard. How faithfully are you using that gift to serve others and his bride? Because she's the only thing he's coming back for. She, he ain't coming back for Hot Water Beach or for, you know, for IBM or Microsoft. He's coming back for his bride. That's it. Nothing else. So Peter concludes this section about the end times, stating this, that the end goal of all that we say and all that we do should be to glorify God, right? First Peter 4.11. So that in all things that we've aforementioned, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all the glory, dominion, and powers, as the other things say, forever and ever. Amen. So how much motivation is that in your own life? Now, if it's some motivation, I haven't put a scale there, but you can figure that out. question is, where should it be? Should it be further north? In five verses, there's an awful lot of practical application. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, we're looking forward to that day when we shall see Jesus and we will worship him who alone is deserving of all the glory how deeply we love you Father would you keep us calm when the unpleasant things come into our lives and call but in the spirit of prayer not just relying on our own devices Give us fervency, Lord, in our love for one another. May your spirit ignite a new fire. Kindle it from, the, from wherever we are. And each one is different, Lord. You know where each one is. For, Father, your word says that that love covers a multitude of sins. Father, it is our prayer that you would find us hospitable to people that we would take time to be accessible and available and genuinely interested in their needs and caring, Lord. And Holy Spirit, would you motivate us to use our gifts, the gifts that you have given us, and help us exercise them for your glory. May your words today, Father, and they are your words, these five verses that we have heard make a difference in our lives and may the difference be significant in that it is noticed by you and those around us. We pray in the matchless, powerful name of Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God.
And all God's people said, Amen.